For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're looking at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 10, which I entitled Exploring the Afterlife. And uh, we want to begin in verse 1, where Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, Paul uses this imagery of a tent. And um, this would have been familiar to the Corinthian people, partly because they were steeped in the Old Testament. They knew that the Israelites were wandering throughout the Sinai Peninsula during the Exodus, and that they would travel in these caravans and set up shop in a specific place that, that God would, would specify, and uh, they would set up camp and then break that down whenever God led them to another place. Not to, not to mention, Paul was a tent maker, and so he worked by day constructing these tents, and then he would you know, wash up and then start proclaiming the message of Christ in the evening. So Paul was probably grabbing for you know, a metaphor that would have been you know, easily within hand for him. Now, when you think about this, metaphor of an earthly tent, he's really describing our bodies and saying that our bodies are kind of like an earthly tent, but that we are awaiting or longing for this eternal building that God is going to construct for us, which represents our heavenly bodies. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh, camping, but, um, you know, when you go out into the great outdoors there's a novelty of, you know, pumping up your queen-size mattress and shoving it into your tent and sleeping, you know, in the great outdoors for a couple days. But if a week goes by, getting eaten up by bugs and having to use, you know, the forest as your bathroom starts to really wear on you. And after a while, you start to appreciate and long to be home. Things like a hot shower, you know, sleeping in your own bed, Wi-Fi. Things like that start to really matter. And so likewise, Paul's saying that, you know, we live in this body, which really is kind of a tent. And God intends to recreate our bodies, giving us physical but eternal bodies that one day we are going to enjoy with him in his presence. And so I think this raises the question well, a few questions that we want to ask about the afterlife. First of all, why should we even believe in an afterlife? I think that's an important question. Secondly, what are the different views of the afterlife that you see in various worldviews or world religions? And thirdly, what effect should the afterlife have on you based on our passage? So we want to sort of look at this passage and try to answer some of these questions. Let's start with number one. Why should we believe in an afterlife? Some common reasons would be, well, because that's the way we were raised to believe. You know, we grew up in a Christian home. Our parents told us that we're going to go to heaven one day. And so we believe that that's what it looks like. And, you know, that's where we're going eventually. Because that's what we were raised to believe. Or maybe, you know, we grew up going to church. And so sitting through sermons and Sunday school, we naturally gravitated to this 
concept that one day we're going to be in this biblical heaven. And so it's a reason, but really it's an inadequate reason if we don't have a basis for belief in an afterlife. What about this? Because it eases suffering and gives you hope in this life. You know, you look at the world that you're living in and you think, how can I live in this senseless uh, world that's just, you know, filled with suffering and evil? And, you know, the, the solution that some of us come to is, well, maybe there's an afterlife. Maybe all of this suffering has some sort of meaning because one day I'm going to be able to enjoy paradise. Or uh, maybe we construct this concept of an, of an afterlife because we're afraid of death. We're nervous about answering that big question, what happens to me when I die? And so wishful thinking tells us we should just believe in an afterlife because that makes us feel better. Think about what Karl Marx famously said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. It makes you feel good about yourself that, that you can say, well, I'm going to go to heaven one day, even though I'm enduring a lot in this world. <clears throat> or should we believe because we have evidence for an infinite personal God? You know, contrary to what you may have heard or believe, one of the things that's very intriguing about Christianity, what I found is that there are a number of converging lines of evidence that point to the reality, not only of a God, but of an infinite personal God, one who wants to relate to us. And so really that is, that should be the basis of an afterlife because if God exists and he's also personal, then it, it makes sense that he would give us a new life once we die, and that there would be a continued personal interaction with him, since he's relational. You know, when we think about Christianity, we're not talking about blind faith. You know, wishful thinking fuels blind faith. When we talk about biblical faith, it's evidence-based. There's actual evidence to believe in Christianity and what it says. <clears throat> In addition to that, I think because there's evidence for Jesus' resurrection, which gives us confidence about our future resurrection. When we look at the passage or the book that uh, we studied prior to 2 Corinthians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 through 20, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. He says, look... You know, it doesn't matter what you want to believe or how much you believe in something. If Christ hasn't been raised, then you're still guilty of your moral wrongdoing. The Bible says that because of the things that we've done, we owe him a moral debt. But because of what Christ has done, because God actually took on human flesh and came in the man Jesus Christ in order to pay for this moral debt, God says that he has released us from this debt. And so as a result, we can have eternal life. He goes on to say, in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost if, the, if Christ has not been raised. 
And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. He's like, you know, it's not noble to believe in something that's completely false. To, to center your life around something that's just a total myth. That's laughable. He says that we're to be pitied more than anyone else to, to give up opportunities to pleasure ourselves. To, to abandon opportunities to experience comfort in this world. Striving to live our lives for something that's a complete lie. And he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he is first of this great harvest of all who have died. In other words, he is the assurance, the guarantee that one day we too will be raised from the dead. The second question we want to ask, what are different views of the afterlife? So maybe there is an afterlife, but there are so many competing voices out there chattering saying, what we're saying is actually the truth. And so how do you sort through all of that? How, how do you make sense of the competing voices out there claiming to possess the truth about the afterlife? I think one view that you normally run into is this concept of universalism. Universalism states that, you know, really it doesn't matter what religion you believe in. It doesn't matter on the continuum of like moral to immoral where you are. The point is that everyone makes it in. And so really, each religion represents just a portion of reality, but it all really ends in the same way. We end up in heaven. And so that's really appealing, right? Because, you know, there aren't any people who are excluded. You know, one illustration that people typically use is the, the illustration of the blind men who stumble upon an elephant who happened to let them touch it, right? And so uh, the first guy, you know, he's, he's uh, grabbing onto the elephant. He's like, you know, I think, it's, I think it's long and it's flexible, kind of like a snake, you know, as he's holding onto the trunk of the elephant. The other guy's like, no, 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 that's not what it is. I, th I feel like it's round and it's, it's, it's really massive as, you know, he's holding onto the elephant's leg. The other guy said, I think all of you guys are mistaken. I think it's, it's flat and really wide as he's touching the side of the elephant. And so the universalist would say, when you look at all of these guys, they, they, they have a portion of the truth, but they're all touching the same thing. And so likewise, when you look at all the variety of world religions out there, you know, each Religion has just a piece of the truth, but nobody really has the monopoly on truth. Nobody understands ultimate reality. To do so would be really arrogant. Now, if you stop to think about it, the question you should ask yourself is, from what perspective is this person telling the story? From the perspective of somebody who isn't blind, who can see the whole picture. And so really this whole analogy sort of backfires on itself because the person telling the story is essentially in a position where they can see where everybody else can't. And so they're, they're guilty of a fallacy, a logical fallacy. Not to mention, you know, it raises other questions such as, you know, if everybody makes it into heaven and heaven constitutes people spending 
the rest of eternity with a personal God, where does that leave people's free choice? What if they don't want to spend the rest of eternity with an infinite personal God? Are we to force them to do that? What about the fact that there is injustice in the world? You know, you think about dictators, people who are mass murderers. You know, are, are those things just going to go, uh, go on unpunished? And so I, I feel like universalism really, uh, I think it's self-contradictory in a lot of ways. Naturalism. Naturalism states simply that, you know, we're just physical beings we're just bags of, you know, biological material slushing around on this earth. And one day, we're going to die. And we're going to decompose. And so, essentially, um, once you die, that's it. Really, what's left of you is, is the memory that your family members and friends have of you until even those artifacts disappear over time. And so, really, it's sort of a bleak picture of the afterlife, which is really nothing at all. What about reincarnation? You know, under the monistic religions, such as Buddhism or Hinduism, you know, each person dies and goes through this cycle of death and rebirth. And you have to do this, in some cases, hundreds or thousands of times until you finally reach this place called either nirvana or moksha. Um, here's Lewis M. Hoff who says that uh, nirvana means extinguished or put out like a candle. Thus, the, the goal of basic Buddhist thought is not the achievement of some state of bliss in some heaven, but the extinguishing of the self and its desire. So in other words, you know, to live and to desire really means that we suffer. And so as you go through this cycle of death and rebirth, eventually uh, you get rid of your karma and your existence gets completely snuffed out, which means that your suffering ends. <clears throat> E.A. Burt, who is a philosopher and wrote a um, number of texts on philosophy of religion, points out that entrance into nirvana by any person means the dissolution at death of all the elements whose composition make him what he is now. So in other words, there isn't going to be any continuity between you as a person your personality, your experience, your memories, none of, that, none of those things are going to translate when you enter into nirvana. Who you are will just simply disappear. And in this concept of moksha, you know, it's really this, the idea that your life is a single droplet in a vast ocean, so you just will return to the all. And so you'll become indistinguishable from the all. Who you are as an individual will disappear. So that really seems very different from the Christian idea of heaven, where there is indeed continuity between who we are in our experiences here on earth, in our personality, and what we will be in heaven, according to the Bible. Now, here's something really interesting. The Bible really stands at odds with this concept of reincarnation because in Hebrews 9, verse 27, it says, it's appointed once for us to die and then judgment. In other words, once you die, your decisions have been made in life. And so, you know, that's it. Now, if you compare that to this concept of reincarnation, 
you know, you may go through a cycle of death that, that's maybe a thousand different times. So if you do it, you know, if you think about this just in a really simplistic manner, you know, the Bible says that you die once. Now, reincarnation suggests that you could die, let's say, a thousand times. One doesn't equal a thousand. So both can't be true. And so I know that it's really popular and, and uh, really interesting to think that, okay, when I look at Eastern religion, there are aspects that I really like about it. Um, and so maybe I could just combine that with Christianity and sort of make my own worldview. Well, these worldviews really stand in opposition to one another in some of their basic uh, outlines. What about soul sleep? You know, this is the concept where you sort of, you die and then you experience this disembodiment. Where, you know, you're just sort of this gas floating in the air. Um, <clears throat> well, again, the Bible suggests that we actually will maintain or retain our personality, who we are, our identity. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 21 through 23. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice he doesn't say to live is Christ and to die is to take a really long nap, right? <laughs> Instead, he says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. So he viewed death as a way to gain entrance into God's kingdom where he could actually be with Christ. So the biblical view of the afterlife is one that's relational. Not only where who we are and our essence will remain intact, but also that we will have continuity in our relationships with one another here. What about the cartoon versions of heaven? You know, whenever we think of heaven and what we will be like, a lot of times we have different ideas. The most common is kind of like, you know, you're like this rotund baby that's just sort of floating in the air, typically playing a harp with some wings. And so, you know, you ask the common person, like, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Well, I don't know. What, is, what does heaven look like? Well, you know, you'll be floating in the air, you'll, you'll be playing a harp, and you'll be eternally chubby. <laughs> I mean, no wonder people... Think about the concept of heaven and think, there's no way I would ever want to do that. That sounds horrible. And yet, it, I think it raises this question, why do we picture heaven this way? Why, why do we conceive of heaven as this sort of boring existence? Well, one author, Randy Alcorn, indicates that he, he believes that it's the influence of Neoplatonic thought on early and medieval Christianity. He says, according to Aquinas, neither plants nor animals will have a place in heaven, the world of light. He argued that there would, only, there would be no active life in heaven, only contemplation. Something a medieval philosopher would revel in, right? Just sitting there and just thinking. He says, because God is the great object of our worship, Aquinas supposed we would think of nothing and no one but God. They claim that heaven couldn't be made of familiar elements such as earth, water, air, and fire. Instead, they argue the Empyrean or highest heaven must be made of a fifth and nobler element, the quintessence, which must be something like pure light. 
And they ignored almost entirely or allegorized into oblivion the new earth as the eternal dwelling place of resurrected humans. Living with resurrected Jesus in a physical realm of natural wonders, physical structures, and cultural distinctives. Now that's more like it, right? A physical world where we have recreated or redeemed bodies where we don't have to suffer any of the effects of the fall anymore. Not only physically, but also relationally. And most importantly, that we'll be re- reunited with Jesus. Well, <clears throat> what does the Bible say heaven looks like? I think, first of all, we're going to live on a recreated earth. Alcorn says, if the word earth means anything, it means that we can expect to find earthly things there. This includes atmosphere, mountains, water, trees, people, houses, and even cities, buildings, and streets. God actually says that he's going to recreate the earth, that he's going to redeem it, and that we are going to occupy earth. That might come as a shock to you if if you've never heard the biblical view of the afterlife. And so where are you going to live? I don't know. Maybe here in Columbus, Ohio. Maybe maybe God's going to give us a few more mountains and beautiful lakes. Something a little bit bigger than Antrim Lake. You know, the, Ol- the Olentangy is going to be flowing without mercury. Think about that. It's going to be glorious. Also, we'll occupy heaven with physical resurrected bodies. Without the ailments. Without the aging. Without the deterioration that we experience. We'll no longer see our loved ones suffer. Physically, we'll no, we'll no longer have to deal with the mental illness that plagues us. God will take all of that away. Most importantly, heaven's not going to be boring. You know, when you think about um, our senses, you know, our sex drive, our, um, you know, our nerve endings, our ability to experience pleasure. Who do you think created that? God himself. And so do you think that the rest of our eternal existence after we die is going to be filled with nothing but boring existence? No, we're going to experience pleasure. Think about your intellect. Think about your drive to succeed, how much pleasure you get in accomplishing something. Heaven is going to be filled with activity where we're learning about the natural world, but most importantly, we're going to learn about God. You know, if God is infinite and he's personal, we're going to spend the rest of eternity learning more and more about his character, who he is. Thirdly, what effect should the afterlife have on you? Well, first of all, Paul tells, tells us that we're going to groan. He says in verse 2 and 4, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our our dwelling from heaven. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burned, because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. You know, one of the great things about inviting Christ into your life is that you experience incredible benefits of your relationship with God. Namely, that God indwells you with the Holy Spirit, giving you unrestricted access and intimacy with him, that he gives you guidance as you, as you try to navigate through life, which can be very confusing. 
that he empowers you to serve him as you step out in faith. And so we get to experience all of these benefits, and yet there's also this sense that something is missing. You know, as we're surrounded by all the evil in the world, you know, you just have to turn on the news. You know, think about this, this last weekend. You know, seeing the, the, the horrific tragedies that people are facing. And you think to yourself, even though I'm in such a privileged situation to have God in my life, the fact that he wants to relate to me, there's still something missing. And theologians call this the already not yet tension that we live in. The fact that God gives us some of the benefits of his eternal kingdom, but we won't fully realize them until we enter his kingdom in the afterlife. And so we groan, we long for that. Secondly, we long for our heavenly home. You know, um, he says in verse two, we're longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. He says, we are of good courage, and I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So there is this sense that we want to be with God. There's this longing to be at home. You know, Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16, depicts how Abraham and Sarah long to experience the heavenly dwelling that God promised them. The author says, they didn't receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. This is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So they they were looking out into the future, their heavenly home that God had promised them. And so, in the same way, we're just travelers. We're, we're temporary residents, which is where our name comes from. Xenos, Xenoi, stranger. Temporary alien in a foreign land. And that our, our true destination is our heavenly home that God promises. And so, you know, you think about home. What, what's so appealing about home? You know, when you are on a long flight or on a long car trip heading toward home, there's this sense of anticipation that starts to build, right? Part of the reason why home is so appealing is because home represents rest. And in the biblical sense, rest means a rest from work. Um, God, you know, in the Old Testament promised that uh, he would give the nation of Israel rest, meaning that they would experience the promised land. He also uh, talks about rest in terms of rest actually meaning that we will feel relief from the weight of sin in our lives. The rest that we feel from anxiety and cares that weigh us down. Not to mention, when you think about home, typically what's so appealing about home are the people who are awaiting us at home. You know, think about the father who rushes home to be with his spouse and kids. You know, the reason he wants to, to, to get home is so that he can be with those people. 
And Paul says in Philippians 3.20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That one day when we arrive in heaven, that we're going to be at home with the one who saved us. The one who we long for. The one that we have spent many countless hundreds of hours in this life, thousands of hours getting to know that we then get to see face to face. There's that longing. Also, it said, you know, this should also drive us to be courageous. Think about what Paul says in verses 5, 6, and 8. He says, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage, And again, he says, we're of good courage. So there's something about um, looking out to where we're heading that gives us courage. Even though we have to experience suffering. Even though we, we face setbacks in our life. That we have courage. And he says it's because of this pledge. This word is um, roughly equivalent to like an earnest or a good faith deposit. Um, many of you have never had this experience, but if you ever decide that you want to buy a house, one of the things you have to do is you need to put down an earnest or a good faith deposit. This is like a few thousand dollars. This puts you in contract with the seller, and really it represents um, a good faith deposit that you are going to buy this house, that you're committed to it. So if you decide to back out illegitimately, they get to keep your money. So likewise, God says that he has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, an earnest or a good faith deposit, guaranteeing our future eternal life with him. God says, I've got you covered. And so this really should drive us to be courageous. You know, really what he's talking about here is the eternal perspective. You know, sometimes when you're facing suffering in your life, It feels like it's insurmountable. It feels like it's never going to end. It it makes no sense. And yet, when you think about things from an eternal perspective, you're taking the timeline of your life and you're stretching it out indefinitely into eternity. And when you start to look at the individual parts of your life here on earth compared to the vast life that you will live in eternity, it makes those Uh, difficult trials seem like momentary and light afflictions, which God promises to make uh, something for his glory, an eternal weight of glory. And so as we have this eternal perspective, it allows us to endure some of the real trials in life that weigh us down. Also, it means that we should live by faith. He says in verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so, you know, God lays out the evidence for belief in him and also the afterlife. But there's an element of faith where we need to trust in what he says, even though we can't see it, even though it's not tangible to us right now. You know, I think about Jesus's interaction with doubting Thomas. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to a number of the disciples And so they came back and reported it to Thomas, one of the apostles. And Thomas made this statement. He says, unless I can put my finger in Jesus' pierced hands and touch 
his pierced side. I will not believe. And then sometime later, the disciples are all hanging out together, including Thomas. And guess what? Jesus shows up. And he's like, what's up, Thomas? <laughs> you know, you can imagine the reaction he had. And he knew what Thomas said. He said, he says, come here, touch my hands, touch my side. And at that point, Thomas makes one of the greatest proclamations in the New Testament. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, he says, he says, um, you know, you're blessed and you believe because you saw. He says, blessed are those who believe and yet do not see. Those who have the evidence and from their inference can conclude with certainty that what God says is actually true. Also, it means that we should seek to please God. He says in verse 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Now, this is confusing. What does it mean to please God? What is he looking for? Well, Paul gives us a concise statement in Colossians 1, verse 10 through 11. He says, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Then he gives three ways that we can please him. He says, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and that you may have great endurance and patience. Three things. Bearing fruit through good works, growing in the knowledge of God, and developing perseverance. And so, you'll hear some people say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you bear fruit. It matters that you are faithful. Well, Turns out, God expects faithfulness and fruit. And sometimes you're slogging away and you're being faithful, but you may not see the results, but eventually you will break through. And so God says, that pleases me. He also says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, whether good or bad. Now this word judgment seat is the Greek word bema. It's not the same Word that's used for the judgment seat of Christ, where Christ will separate those who have rejected him and those who are going to gain entrance into heaven. This is talking about believers who actually are living for Christ and whom God says he will actually reward. Think about that. Let that sink in. God says, look, I'm going to give you eternal life free of charge just by simply putting your faith in me. And then he says, on top of that, if you decide that you're going to take advantage of living for me in this life faithfully, I'm going to reward you on top of that. It's amazing. It speaks to God's generosity and his love for us. You know, this word bema was actually used of uh, the Olympic Games. Whenever a competitor would win, uh, he would present himself at the Bema seat and would receive his, his wreath, which indicated that he was the winner. And so he used, you know, Paul uses this imagery to help his audience think of the kind of glory that God wants to give all of us. Now, <clears throat> um, this question sometimes comes up when we, when we talk about receiving a reward from God. Isn't it selfish to serve because we want to receive a reward? Well, 
uh, I think this concept of wanting glory, it's not inherently sinful. You know, think about in Matthew 25, in the parable of the, the talents, God, or the, the master comes to each one who, each one of his servants who doubled their, his money and said, good and faithful servant. And so he, he commended them for serving him. And so I don't think that, you know, there's anything wrong with us wanting glory. A lot of times uh, when we think of glory, we're thinking of, of the fallen expression of glory where we want to put ourselves center stage and put God in the background. But God actually says that he intends to use us as a conduit for his glory. Look at this um, passage here. Um, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. In other words, God wants to use our work to reflect what he has done. Kind of like when you admire a painting, you're in a way admiring the artist. And likewise, when people see the good works that we do, when they see the transformation in our lives, it points to the one who's done that work in us and through us. Not to mention, God actually says that he wants to sh us to share in his glory. He says in John 17, verse 22, I've given them the glory that you gave me and that they may be one as we are one. God actually wants us to share in his glory, which is amazing. And, you know, when you think about these heavenly rewards, they're, they're not going to be most, you know, God probably is going to give us a lavish house to live in. You know, it's kind of funny when you see people, they're, they're decking out their house with the newest finishes and spending all their time on home improvement. And you think to yourself, you know, God has unlimited resources, and Jesus says in John 14, 1, I'm preparing a home for you. Think about what your house is going to look like, the one that Jesus personally put together for you. It's going to be awesome. But that's not really the thing that's going to get us excited. It's, it's going to be the people that's going to excite us. Think about what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19 and 20. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which uh, we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. You know, we think, what does it matter that I gave, you know, a few hundred dollars to God's work over the last year? Or you may think to yourself, you know, I have shared the message of Christ with so many friends and I just got shot down every single time. And so we look at our attempts to serve God and we think to ourselves, huge failure. And yet, I wonder, once we enter into God's heavenly kingdom, how God's going to show us how he multiplied our small efforts to impact people way beyond what we ever believed or imagined that we're going to see people we've never met come up to us and say, you know, if you hadn't contributed that money, that person would have never come to my village and shared the message of Christ. You played a part in me coming to know God. Well, <clears throat> I think we want to sort of bring this back full circle. 
you know, when you look at all of the different world religions, there are so many different things that uh, contradict uh, each world religion. You know, I mean, you look at them and it's their view of the afterlife are, are widely divergent. But I guess, is there a common thread that pulls them all together? <clears throat> well, it's interesting when you look at Buddhism, for example, the Dalai Lama believed that Jesus Christ became an enlightened person through uh, Buddhist practice. I didn't read that in the Bible, but it's interesting that he believed that and taught it. Christian science, uh, Mary, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian science, called Jesus the Son of God. What about in Hinduism? Gandhi held that Jesus was as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. In Islam, Jesus was, uh, will be at the final judgment of all people. Moreover, he was a miracle worker. He was sinless. He was born of a virgin. And the Quran actually calls Jesus a Messiah. What about Jehovah's Witnesses? They believe that Jesus was a mighty God and perhaps a powerful angel. And in Mormonism, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, believed that Jesus was one of many gods. In New Age spirituality, Deepak Chopra believes Jesus was a teacher of the enlightened. And so when you look at all of these world religions, it's interesting that the one common thread is Jesus. And so I think it raises the question, why do so many world religions want Jesus on their side? And maybe the other question we should ask is, if you're investigating the afterlife, why not start with Jesus? Why not look into his life and who he is? Start by investigating what the Bible says about him, reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but starting with John, which is the easiest. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess uh, why don't we uh, pray, and uh, then we can hang out. Grateful that you uh, paint this picture of heaven for us so that you can entice us to um, look forward to it, to long for it. Um, we know that uh, as we contemplate heaven, it doesn't make us um, inactive. It actually causes us to uh, want to share the message of Christ more with people so that they can actually experience that too. And I pray for anyone here tonight who um, senses that you are inviting them to have eternal life through Jesus Christ, that they would uh, take up that offer and turn to you right now and receive it. And uh, we thank you for anyone who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.